My wife and I had just sat down to dinner when we were interrupted, first by the sound of the front doorknob twisting, then by three loud knocks. I stood up from the table and went to the front door, wondering who would have tried the knob first before knocking. My... my brother maybe, but it was a little late for a visit from him on a weeknight. The sound of the rainstorm outside grew as I opened the door. When I saw her standing on the porch, covered in rain and mud, my heart nearly leapt out of my chest. Hi, Daddy, Sarah said. The way her eyes and nose were scrunched up told me she was crying, even though the rain washed away her tears the second they fell from her eyes. Can I come inside? It's cold. I heard some glass shatter in the kitchen, then rushed footsteps. I grabbed my daughter in a tight embrace and began to sob. Oh my god, you're home, I said. Three years ago, we had reported our daughter missing. We told the police that we had put her to bed one night, and the next morning she was gone. The police found that her bedroom window showed evidence of having been pried open. My wife, Hannah, and I hadn't heard anything that night. The neighbors all agreed they hadn't either. What happened next was the largest search party in our small town's history. It's not even 13-year-old girls going missing, especially under such terrible and mysterious circumstances. But, but despite everyone's best efforts in news reports throughout the state and neighboring states, there, there was no trace to be found of our little girl. I picked her up and carried her into the house while she sobbed into my neck. I heard my wife turn the corner and let out a small scream and then join us in our first complete family hug in three years. What happened? Hannah asked. Did anyone follow you here? No, Sarah said throughout her sobs. I I don't know what happened. I, I just woke up in the dark and started trying to find my way home. I don't know where I was. Something in the desert, I think. I, and I just started walking. I set her down and looked at her again. Her hair was long. It probably hadn't been cut since the night we lost her, and the clothes she wore looked like they had been given to her by a homeless person. Let's let's get you to a hot shower, my wife said. Are you hungry? Sarah sniffed and nodded. Can I have a peanut butter sandwich? Anything, my wife said, now choking back tears of her own. I can't believe you're back. We dressed her in some of Hannah's old clothes, which were still a little large for Sarah. I promised to go to the store first thing in the morning to buy a whole new wardrobe. The rest of the evening was spent with tears and laughter. Hannah and I couldn't believe she was back, and with no recollection of the time between the night, she disappeared when she woke up. Perhaps that, that much was for the best. After Sarah was asleep, we put her in the office with an air mattress and promises of a new mattress along with her new clothes. I sat outside on the patio with a glass of bourbon in one hand and a cigarette in the other. My wife came outside and softly closed the door behind her. We sat in silence for a moment, and then she finally spoke. What the hell do we do? Her voice was low and shaky. I shook my head slowly and took a long drag of my cigarette. I have no idea. Thank God she doesn't remember anything, Hannah said, taking a sip of the wine she'd bought with her. You know, you you don't think she knows, do you? Shush, I said sharply, trying to keep my emotions level, which was difficult because I was on the brink of panicking myself. We shouldn't talk about it. She took a sip of her wine and lowered her voice even more, so it was just barely above the sound of crickets chirping in the grass. 
You don't think she can hear us, do you? I don't think so. I answered slowly. But... But I didn't think a lot of things before, and... Look at what happened. We sat again in silence for a long while, both reflecting on the night she disappeared and the lies we told to every police officer and news reporter that came our way. Keeping the lies straight hadn't taken months of practice, but somehow we'd, we pulled it off. But that wasn't even the hard part. The hard part was keeping the whole plan away from Sarah. The year or so we'd spent planning the whole thing in secret, talking to the neighbors to keep their cooperation, all while doing our best to keep the life-changing event as far as out of our minds as possible. She's bound to find out what we did, Hannah said. We're not, we're not so good at keeping things away from her as we used to be. It's just like riding a bike, I said, hoping more than anything I was right. The fact of the matter was that, three years ago, Hannah and I had committed the unforgivable act of suicide. We'd, we'd kill our own daughter. The very one that was now three years old and slept on an air mattress inside. That wasn't bad enough. Shortly after doing so, for a good measure, we had moved across town to get a fresh start. And, and although we never said it out loud, even to each other, because we were still terrified, even though she was gone, we were careful not to list our address on anything. No yellow pages, no direct mailing, nothing. And yet, Sarah still managed to find us. We hadn't wanted to do it. We spent years convincing ourselves that we were in control, that it was just a matter of good parenting. After what happened to the Jarvis boy, though, we knew that for the sake of ourselves and everyone around us, there was there was only one thing to do. I took another drag of my cigarette. I hadn't realized until that moment that my hand was shaking and stared out at the night sky, trying not to think about everything that led up to that night, but being able to think of nothing else. Sarah was a beautiful, smart, and happy little girl. As new parents, everything we did revolved around her. I couldn't wait to get home from work just so I could hold her. Hannah, as exhausted as she was, loved the late night feedings because she got extra time with the baby. We bought toys and clothes for her every time we ran to the store. We were, we were completely under her spell. Which... Which is why we found it so strange that very few people actually wanted to interact with her. Both our mothers came down to visit during the week after Sarah was born, each simply bubbling over with excitement about meeting their new granddaughter. But, but neither of them stayed in the house for more than an hour, and only five minutes or so was spent holding the baby. Strangers would actively avoid looking at her and nobody not once ever stopped us to say how adorable our baby was. We hadn't noticed these things at first. The things our mothers had definitely rubbed us. It, it rubbed us the wrong way, but the avoidance of public, the sideways glances from people at the store, the way our neighbors never seemed to visit anymore, all took time to finally come together to form the complete picture. People simply wanted nothing to do with Sarah and for no reason at all that we could understand. We took her to the doctor on a regular basis to track her growth and development, and every time the doctor and nursing staff would do everything they could to get in and out of the room as quickly as possible. Eventually I brought it up that they always seemed to be in a rush, and although the doctor fed us a lie about how busy he was, 
The nurse told me after he left that the room felt weird. She said she had no idea why, but when she walked into the room, she was reminded of when she was a little girl and had to go fetch something for her mother from the basement. She said profusely that it was nothing to do with us or our darling little girl, but but Hannah and I had begun to suspect the truth by, by that point, and we knew that the nurse was just being polite. I'd be lying if I said this didn't bother us, but we told ourselves that people would come around eventually, and if they didn't, then forget them. It was when Sarah was around three that we began to feel ourselves that there was something different about her. We'd long since come to terms with the fact that she made people feel uncomfortable, but it was at this time we actually dipped our toes into that pool. Anyone who had been around toddlers can attest that even the best behaved children can be a handful at times. They want to be independent, they want to make their own decisions, but even lack the skills to do so. Although there was a lot that seemed different about Sarah from the beginning, this was not one of those differences. She yearned for independence and defiantly disagreed with just about everything we told her. This went on for some time, and Hannah and I were beginning to approach a method of maneuvering around these disagreements when Sarah threw us a curveball that that changed everything. She started arguing and throwing fits before we had even said anything. Hannah first noticed it during an argument with Sarah over what we were having for dinner. I was still at work while Hannah was working out whether we should have grilled chicken or pork chops. She had gotten up to open the freezer when Sarah came running over to the kitchen and said she didn't want chicken or pork chops, she wanted pancakes for dinner. Hannah laughed us off and told Sarah that we'd have pancakes another night which of course quickly turned into stomping feet and red-faced tears in a timeout in her bedroom. Hannah had told me later that night that the strange thing that struck her wasn't that Sarah had known what she was about to do, but, but it was a peculiar feeling she got just before it happened. She said she felt a strange sense of unease wash over her like she imagines a gazelle gets when it senses a lion approaching. I felt the same thing while I was changing the oil in the car a few weeks later. I had forgotten to grab the fuel filter wrench and was about to slide out from under the car to get it when I was suddenly shrunken by an overwhelming sense of dread. I quickly slid out from under the car worried that the jack would fail and I'd be crushed when I saw Sarah approaching me with the tool in her hand. She smiled and said, here you go daddy. Holding back a shutter, I thanked her, kissing her forehead and she went back into the house to watch cartoons. The past couple of days after Sarah arrived back have been some of the most stressful days of our lives. We've done everything we can to be the parents she remembered us as, to be and not the parents who had killed her and left her body in the desert. The hardest part is that we can't even think about that night or how terrified we are. We have to keep thinking about how happy we are to have her home and how sad we had been when she was gone, and there was absolutely no margin for error. Sarah's story, as she told us over breakfast, was full of blind spots and holes. She remembered sitting down to dinner with us. She had picked up burgers from her favorite restaurant down the street, and she remembers us going to bed. But after that, it's all completely blank. The next thing she recalls was stumbling around naked in the desert, finding a road and eventually being picked up by the driver and given a ride to 
the truck stop, 25 miles away from where she stayed the night. The next morning, she started off to find us. She didn't tell us how she found us, and we didn't ask. I'm not sure she would be able to answer the question, and if she could, I, I don't think I would want to know the answer anyway. Hannah and I took turns spending time with her while the other went out under the goose of running errands. Picking up clothes, ordering a bed, buying groceries. But the honest truth was that we needed distance, we needed to distance ourselves from the constant drum of unease that followed Sarah wherever she went. Even when she was younger, sleeping in the same house as Sarah was difficult, especially with that distinct feeling of impending danger spread thin across every room. We hadn't always felt that way, but the older she got, the more that feeling deepened. Now that she's 16, and when we're out of practice, the feeling is almost unbearable. We feel like mice trying to rest while a cat sleeps across the hall. After what happened last night, we know that the nights are going to be significantly worse. I hadn't been asleep for long before I was startled awake by a loud thump. Hannah awoke as well, and we sat up together, searching the bedroom for the source of the sound. I was reminded vividly of a night where Sarah was ten or so, and a few birds had peddled the house, waking us up in similar fashion. Sarah had fiend innocence. She had been quiet all afternoon, and Hannah and I suspected that she had a run-in with some of the neighborhood kids early that day. Another loud thump shook the house. It was a, it was a hollow, hard sound, like a fist pounding on our bedroom wall. We exchanged a look, then quickly got out of bed and went to the room next door where Sarah slept. My heart pounded in my chest as we both paused before opening the door. We knew that nothing, nothing good could come out of opening the door, but the alternative could be far worse. Another loud thump, then another. Then, they were getting faster, and there was a strange crackling sound that came with the last one that turned my pulse up another notch. I threw the door open and flipped on the light. I first noticed that Sarah's bed was empty, then, then that she stood with her back against the wall. The wall of this room shared with our bedroom. She had a twisted grin on her face that was so tight it looked painful. The tendons in her neck stood out like cords, and her throat bulged from the pressure of it all, but the smile stopped at her mouth. Her eyes looked like they had been made of glass. We stepped into the room, and Sarah thumbed the back of her head hard against the wall. The crackling I'd heard had been drywall and that I now saw breaking from the spot where her head collided and speckling her bare feet with dust. Sarah, what are you? Hannah asked, but was cut off by another thump, then another. Sarah sped up, hitting her head against the drywall as fast as she could. I rushed over to her and pulled her away. Her body was rigid, but relaxed as I laid her back down on the air mattress. She looked up at me then. The glass in her eyes was gone, and for a brief moment I could see my baby girl in them. Seeing the faint reflection of the past in those eyes made my heart feel like it was weighted by a ton. The moment passed and her eyes grew their hard look again. It was a cold, unfeeling look that I had seen unwavering since the incident with Preston Jarvis and those horrors that came into the weeks that followed. 
It was the look that ultimately led us to commit our own unforgivable sin. My head hurts, Daddy, she said in a small voice. I know, I told her. What were you doing? I had to get them out, she said. What? I asked. The memories. Sarah was six when we first saw her strange talents affect the physical world. Until that point, it seemed that whatever she could do was strictly tied to an ethereal plane. She could change our emotions and read our minds to a certain degree, but she certainly wasn't bending spoons or levitating off the ground. Either of those would have been preferred. It was sometime in July, and the weather had turned from warm to hot, and the dog days of summer were upon us. A scream and a crash from the kitchen destroyed whatever tranquility had been in the house that day. Came running into the room to find Hannah, precociously balancing on the counter, and a glass of iced tea smashed on the floor. She saw me and immediately pointed to the stove. It went under there. What did? I asked. The mouse. I laughed and earned daggers from Hannah's eyes. She'd never been one to cope well with household critters. I'll get a trap. Just before I turned to go fetch a mouse trap, I saw a black blur bolt from beneath the stove. Hannah shrieked again and I went for the broom that hung in the closet next to me. Before I could do anything else, the mouse stopped suddenly in the middle of the floor. With the broom in hand, wondering if I could somehow sweep it out of the house, I approached a rodent. As I got closer though, I noticed it wasn't moving. Its ribs weren't expanding and contracting the way they do with little animals. Nor was its head twitching around as it searched for a place to hide. In fact, this, this mouse wasn't even standing. I tapped it with the bristles of the broom carelessly and Hannah let out an audible shudder. Calm down, I told her. I think it's dead. Dead? It, it just died. Yeah, I said. I think so. I knelt down to get a closer look. I looked up and saw Sarah staring at us from the hallway. She had this look in her eye. One I would come to see often in dread. Even that, even that first time, it, it made my blood run cold and sent chills down my spine. Sarah? I said carefully. Are you alright? She looked at me and the look was gone, melted away to expose the happy face of a little girl I loved so dearly. Yeah, daddy. Now that mouse won't scare mom anymore. I looked at the dead mouse, then back at my daughter. Did you do something to the mouse? Yeah. Her answer was so cold, so casual that it gave me goosebumps. Just like I do to the spider sometimes. I stood in shocked silence for a minute, which Sarah took as her cue to return to whatever she'd been doing in her bedroom. Hannah slid from the counter and stood next to me for several minutes before she asked a question that had been floating in the back of my mind, but hadn't yet come forward. When was the last time you saw a spider in the house? I... I started and stopped. I don't know. After the incident with the mouse, Hannah and I took special care to teach Sarah right from wrong. She seemed to grasp the concept that hurting anything was wrong, and it was especially wrong to kill things. We'd ask her to never do what she did to the mouse again, and to try to focus on doing good with her talents. We weren't, we weren't entirely sure what she was capable of doing, so trying to give her examples of good things she could do was a bit difficult. For the most part, we just hope she didn't do anything without our consent. After we'd gotten used to the uneasy feeling we'd gotten, whenever she peeked into our minds, we started playing guessing games. 
This allowed her to stretch her muscles in a manner of speaking and allowing us to pick up on subtleties we otherwise would have been blind to. Hannah and I learned that Sarah could pick up on what we were thinking, but, but only what we were actively thinking about. If there was a secret we didn't want her to know, we could keep it from her by keeping a song in our head or thinking about work. This skill, which we initially used to keep Christmas and birthday presents secret, would become vitally important and likely save many of our lives years later. Outside of home, things were significantly different from Sarah. Very few people got used to the way that she made them feel. That inescapable feeling of danger looming that she seemed to exude was difficult to ignore. It took several years, but eventually our neighbors did start coming around again. Bob, an elderly man across the street who lived for his rose bushes, was the first person outside of Hannah and myself to really open up to Sarah. With a wife who had passed away three years prior and his only grandkids living only two states away, it, it surprised nobody to see that he and Sarah found solace in each other's company. Like all the other neighbors, Bob politely declined any invitation to our house regardless of the weather. He never spent too much time with Sarah, but if she was playing alone in the front yard, as she often did, it, would, it wouldn't it would be long before Bob came shuffling over with a bag of taffy or ice cream bar in his hand for her. He'd give her a crooked grin, tell her not to spoil her dinner with it, and would walk back across the street to trim his rose bushes or fertilize his lawn. Had this unlikely friendship not come into existence, Hannah and I would probably have not known about the incident with Bear, the Rottweiler that lived down the street. The neighborhood children were often cruel to Sarah, which sadly surprised us very little. Hannah and I did everything we could to mitigate it. We talked to Sarah about it as often as we could. We told her that she was loved no matter what the other kids said. But at eight or nine years old, the isolation from her peers was devastating. The other kids' parents were of little to no help either, being as difficult or more than their children. Eventually, Sarah learned it was best to keep to herself, which worked for the most part. It was October, and the leaves were changing, and there was a crisp chill in the air that made us all crave pumpkin spice and apple cider. Halloween was a week or two away, but the spirit was alive already especially for the children in the neighborhood who rode their bikes up and down the street, smashing pumpkins and doorbell ditching helpless victims. Sarah, of course, never participated, which was just fine by us concerning the trouble the other kids got into. Three of these kids lived down the street from our home, Austin Francis, Kenny Ryan, and Preston Jarvis, and they were the worst offenders. If I found eggs in my house, it was, it was one of those boys. If Hannah found the garden torn up, it was one of those boys. If if Sarah was being picked on in front of the yard, it was one of those boys. They were like a small pack of hyenas, laughing to themselves and wrecking all sorts of havoc. Hannah was doing laundry in the basement, and I was at work that day in October when three boys came riding down the street on their bikes, hootering and hollering like they did back then, one of them carrying a leash attached to a particularly mean brought rattler named Bear. Sarah had been decorating the driveway with sidewalk chalk when the boys rolled up and stopped at the curb. Hey, you freak, Kenny called out. What you doing? Sarah didn't respond. Hey, Preston said. We asked you a question. Sarah, again, said nothing. Austin took a step forward, 
unzipped the front of his pants and let forth a stream of urine all over the chalk drawing Sarah had been working on. Sarah stood up and took a step back to avoid the pee and Austin sprinkled the pile of chalk she'd been using just for good measure. As his back and forth went on, or maybe just back, because at this point there was no fourth, Bear grew more and more agitated. Sarah had never been in any luck with animals, most avoided with her more than people did, but Bear was a nasty dog without any additional priority. He'd charge the fence at anyone who passed his yard, snarling and growling and slamming his considerable weight against the chain link, making everyone on the other side of that fence immediately nervous. There was even a rumor that the Ryans had to pick their mail up from the post office because the mail carriers refused to deliver it to that address anymore. Noticing this agitation, Kenny called out to his friends. Hey, look at Bear. Even he hates her. The dog was pulling at his collar and snarling at Sarah now, large ropes of saliva hanging down from his jaws. Looks like he wants to get off that leash, Preston said. I say we let him go and have that whatever's pissing him off. Preston went over to the dog who was pulling so hard at the leash now that Austin was leaning backward to keep back control of him. It was at this point that Bob, who had been watching the scene unfold from his front yard, decided he needed to step in, not knowing that he wouldn't get past the end of his driveway before it was all over. Sarah stepped forward, still saying nothing and the boys instinctively took a step back. Bear, however, inched forward, the muscles in his neck and chest flexing as he pulled the boy on the other end of the leash along. Sarah took another step forward, now less than a foot away from the beast that waited more than she did, and that was when the dog stopped snarling. He still pulled at his leash, but the fight had left him. Instead, he pulled and twisted his neck in the way of a dog, attempting an escape from a collar. Bear pulled harder, and the links of the metal choke collar broke, tingling against the ground like lost change. The entire time, Sarah's blank gaze followed Bear. Although he'd felt fear countless times throughout his life, Bob admitted later that watching this play out, and especially seeing the cold, dead, predatory look in Sarah's eyes was the first and only time he'd ever experienced real, unadulterated terror. Bear only got a few feet away before the orange and white blur of an oncoming U-Haul truck collided with it and the rot rattle was no more. The driver leapt out of the cab and the rest of the scene unfolded as one would expect, with the exception of Sarah who picked up her piss-covered chalk and returned to the picture she'd been working on while screams and apologies and tears went on behind her. Moments later, Hannah would hear the commotion and come outside. Bob would call me a day later tell me what he'd seen. He'd tell me how frightened he was and how strangely the dog had moved when it made its final footsteps like a puppet on a string. A week after that, Bob would come outside to find three of his biggest, healthiest rose bushes looking black and brittle while Sarah stood motionless, watching him from her bedroom window. To say that Sarah was different after the incident with the rot rally would be a gross understatement. The darkness in her eyes that visited from time to time had taken up residency, only leaving for brief moments that to remind us of our little girl still existed. We took her to several therapists, hoping that perhaps with professional mental help, she could overcome whatever demon she was battling inside her, and that we'd finally get our little girl back. What we got in return were a conflicting diagnosis. Psychosis, bipolar disorder, depression, ADHD, schizophrenia to name a few, and a constant wave of referrals. 
Sarah would barely get two or three appointments out of the same therapist before being recommended to another more qualified practitioner. Some would even just stop showing up at all and refuse to return our phone calls. After a couple of years of this, Hannah and I had ultimately decided to forego therapy and focus on learning what we could on the subject ourselves. The constant loss of people in her life was doing far more harm than good. Given the juggling act of therapists, requests for her to change teachers in school, mid-year, and the lack of friends, I can't say I was surprised to see Sarah shut down, and it broke my heart. The bullying tapered off for a while after the demise of bears, but children are quick to forget, and it wasn't long before the abuse from other children started up again, and with the ferocity that both terrified and infuriated us. Hannah and I did everything we could think of to protect Sarah from the barrage of hate and to protect the other children from suffering unimaginable consequences. We practiced breathing exercises. We taught Sarah how to get help from adults, specifically adults who were required to interfere, and how to get herself away from these situations. Always vigilant, Hannah and I would drop off Sarah at school or take walks around the neighborhood to to see other children in casts, braces, and crunches, and we would wonder why so many of them had been genuine incidents, and how many had pushed Sarah too far. There certainly seemed to be more injuries than seemed normal. It was foolish to assume Sarah hadn't, hadn't played a part in at least a few of them, no matter how often we practiced self-control with her. Of course, we couldn't ask Sarah about it. We couldn't even think about it around her. We told ourselves it was because we wanted to avoid isolating Sarah more than she already was, which which was absolutely true, but the whole the whole truth was that we were also afraid of her turning on us. She seemed so volatile that a wrong word, a wrong thought could push her over the edge. For better or worse, we didn't have to bring it up because her involvement in the mysterious neighborhood injuries was all but confirmed over the course of a few months when the three boys from down the street, Austin, Preston, and Kenny all managed to find themselves in cast with broken bones and were suddenly too busy to care much about picking on our daughter. If I'm being honest with myself, I was glad to see those boys laid up for a bit. Sarah's wrath had been a long time coming. If I could have gotten away with smacking those boys around a bit, I probably would have. After some time passed, Hannah and I had noticed that one of the three boys was missing. Although Kenny and Preston still came around on occasion to throw rocks at the house or yell profanities at Sarah as she sat outside, Austin was nowhere to be seen. Fearing the worst, we started asking around the neighborhood about the boy. Neither Hannah nor myself had a good report with Austin's parents. I'd... I'd nearly come to blows with his father over the incident with his dog, so walking down the street and knocking on the door wasn't really an option. The Francis family had moved a few weeks prior from the woman who lived next door. Nobody knew why they'd moved, but nobody really had a great relationship with that family. Randall Francis was an alcoholic and Lauren Francis was a chain smoke drug addict. Nobody in the neighborhood was sorry to see their house vacant. After a year later, the Ryan family moved in leaving Preston and Jarvis alone to pick on Sarah. Having now lost his two best friends to cross-country relocations, Preston's own isolation made him even meaner and more cruel towards Sarah. Perhaps if his friends had been around, things would have gotten different for Preston, although that was far out of his control. 
The Preston Jarvis incident, as it would forever be branded in my mind, occurred on July 4th, 2019. The three of us had spent the morning with the rest of the town on Main Street for the annual Independence Day Parade. Sarah hadn't wanted to go, but had been a good sport about it at least. These days, she kept almost entirely to herself, only really coming out of her room for meals and to go to school. Every free moment she had was spent with her nose in a book, enjoying the escape to distant lands where children were nice to each other and villains got their own commitments. Hannah and I encouraged this as, as much as we could, while also trying to promote social growth, which was as difficult as it was terrifying, but also equally as necessary. Sarah had brought along a novel called New Moon, the second book in her favorite series that she'd finished several times already, and together we enjoyed the sun and the food and the sights offered by the parade. We'd gotten a few smiles out of her, a rare currency says, so Hannah and I were taking the day as a win. That was until Preston Jarvis rolled up on his bike. He'd been bold to bully Sarah in front of us before, but today he... He must have been feeling specially brave. Hey there, freak, he called from the curb. Why don't they put you in a cage and parade you around this year? Get the freak out of here, I retorted. It's your fault she's such a freak anyway. Your whole family is probably a bunch of devil worshippers. That's what my dad says anyway. I think we'd be all better off with if you were all dead. I stood from the camping chair we brought with us and walked the few feet that slipped between us. Listen here, you little crap, I said between my teeth. I don't give a freak what you or your dad thinks. Come around my family again and I'll put you in a hospital. He looked at me for a beat, then opened his mouth to reply. His eyes shifted then to Sarah and his expression turned to a mixture of fear and hatred. Then his mouth closed and he rode off down the street. I sat back down, expecting to be chastised by Hannah for threatening the kid, but got nothing other than a sideways look. You all right, kiddo? I asked Sarah. I couldn't be sure from what I said. I couldn't be sure from where I sat, but I thought I could see the shadow of a smile on her lips. Yeah, she answered. I think it'd be better off if he were dead. Hannah and I exchanged a look of concern. I don't think so, Hannah said, always a mitigator. I think his family would miss him. We may not like him, but there's plenty of people that do, and they would be sad if something happened. Sarah nodded in response, more of an acknowledgement than agreement and went back to her book. Later that day, we found ourselves at the park to enjoy the firework display the city put on. We'd enjoy as much as we could from the crowds during the parade, so that night we'd hung back a quiet bit from where the main groups were. Hannah and I sat on the park bench enjoying the hot dogs while Sarah sat under a tree working on her fishing book before the sun finished setting. Just as I swallowed the last bit of the hot dog, I, I heard a hissing sound and felt a rush of warm air on my cheek. Bang! A bottle rocket exploded near the tree where Sarah sat. I whipped around and was unsurprised to see Preston Jarvis ten feet away, aiming another bottle rocket at us. He lit the rocket and moments later, it flew past me, hitting the tree Sarah sat against and exploding. I stood up and Preston knew he only had a few seconds before I knocked him to the ground. He bent over and picked the largest out of the pile of fireworks at his feet. It was significantly larger than the ones he had shot at us and lit the fuse. Before I could get close enough to stop him, the firework went off. It fired several shots, one after another, turning our small patch of park into the scene from the war movie. The hot rockets hit my back and showered me in ash and spent gunpowder. 
I looked up and saw that several of the fireworks had hit the target. Sarah was wiping embers off of her face and out of her hair while her book smoldered at her feet. After the firework was spent, smoke and the scent of sulfur hung in the air like fog. I turned around to face Preston. The rage I felt must have not been the fraction of rage Sarah was feeling because I didn't get a step toward the boy before every firework at his feet exploded. He stumbled backward and cried out in surprise and pain. Then a dark spot began to grow at the crotch of his pants and his eyes widened to a look of sheer terror. He stood up and began to run, screaming in horror and calling for help. A second later, Sarah rushed past me after the boy. I lunged forward, hoping to catch one of Sarah's hands, but she was too quick. The sun had set by now and the park was growing dark quickly as I bolted after the children. Preston's legs and arms pumped wildly as he ran past trees and bushes, desperately trying to escape his pursuer. He turned and ran into the thicker part of the trees, with Sarah hot on his feet. I beelined toward them, calling Sarah's name and begging her to not do anything to Preston. I saw their shapes passing the trees, Preston, then Sarah, Preston, then Sarah, then... Then it was just Sarah. No, I cried out desperately. No, Sarah, no! Sarah stopped and I maneuvered around the trees as quickly as I could, praying that I would find anything other than a boy's body at her feet. I was both relieved and terrified when I found Sarah alone. Sarah, where... Sarah, where is Preston? I asked between hard breaths. Where did he go? Nowhere, Sarah said. I looked around the ground, up the trees, in the bushes, and there was no sign of the boy. Sarah, I said sharply. What happened? She didn't answer. I grabbed her shoulders, trying not to panic, but slowly losing the battle. Sarah, I yelled, shaking her. Sarah, what, what did you do? Hannah caught up to us by now and gently removed my hands from Sarah's shoulder. What happened? She asked. I could tell she was trying as hard as I was to keep her voice steady. Where's Preston? Sarah still said nothing. The glassy, dead look in her eyes remained unwavering. I looked down and saw the boy's footsteps in the dirt. In the quickly dwindling light, it was difficult to make them out from Sarah's and my own. But with the flashlight on my phone, I was able to track the boy's final steps. He'd run past a tree that I'd last seen him behind, then turn, but then his footsteps stopped in the middle of the path. They didn't lead to a tree or a bush, it just simply stopped. I searched for hours and found no other clue to Preston's whereabouts. Hannah took Sarah home and put her to bed. She still hadn't said a word about what happened, nor would she ever. When I'd exhausted my search of the tree, I had Hannah pick me up. We drove home in silence, neither of us sure what to say, but both feeling unspeakably terrified. I waited anxiously for the phone call from the police, for the news reports about the missing child, for, for the Amber Alert on my phone, but nothing came. There were no newspaper articles, no breaking news, no missing child posters, absolutely nothing. Two weeks went by before I had the curse to ask Preston's father about him. We had never been on good terms, but he had been watching his car while I was out for my morning jog, and I didn't think another opportunity would present itself in the near future. Hey, Mark. I called from the street. Hey, he called back pleasantly, which somewhat surprised me. How's it going? Not bad, I said. I haven't seen Preston in a while. Is he at summer camp or something? Who? Mark Jarvis asked. My heart had been pounding furiously in my chest from the anticipation of speaking with Preston's father, but now it seemed to stop completely.
What? Nags breathlessly. Who are you talking about? Mark wore an expression of confusion as if I'd just grown a second head. Preston, I repeated. Your son? About Sarah's age? The corners of his mouth turned down slightly and he raised his eyebrow. I don't have a son, he said. You feeling alright? I tried to swallow, but my mouth was too dry. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I managed to get out. Sorry, I, I think I might have just had a little stroke, I guess. Ready to get inside, then, he said, his expression now turning from confusion to genuine concern. Sounds like it might be serious. You want me to walk you up the street with you? No, thanks, I, I told him. Oh, I'll head back home now. He waved goodbye as I walked away, my morning cardio routine completely forgotten. Later that night, long after Sarah had fallen asleep, later that night, long after Sarah had fallen asleep, I would tell Hannah about what happened. She would look as confused as I felt for a moment. Then, after taking the time to fully process what had happened, she would begin to sob. We, we had thought that Sarah killed Preston Jarvis, but the reality was much worse. She had completely erased him from existence. It took weeks for the shock of what happened to Preston Jarvis to wear thin enough for Hannah not to even think about what to do next. We both tried talking to Sarah about it, but the little girl we'd raised seemed to have evaporated that night along with Preston. Her eyes showed no joy, no love, no hope, nothing but emptiness. We attempted a few times to talk to Sarah about the incident, but it was obvious we couldn't get through to her. When we asked her exactly what happened to Preston, her answer was always different variations of, I made him go away. She never said she killed him, and I suppose I wasn't entirely inaccurate, but she also said she couldn't bring him back. I'm, I'm not sure whether I believed that she couldn't undo what she'd done. At this point, I wasn't sure if she was capable of anything or if it was more that she wouldn't undo what she'd done. I'm not sure which option terrified me more. So I kept to herself even more than she had in the past. Before, Hannah and I could always carry conversations with her and get her to join us on trips to the store, but now it was nearly impossible to even get her out of her bedroom for dinner. We would always go days without seeing her. We only knew she was alright because... We could hear her moving around in her bedroom and a plates of food Hannah would leave and the hallway would be emptied by morning. I tried to stay up late once to see if I could catch Sarah coming out of her bedroom, but I'd fallen asleep around 3am and by the time I woke up, the food was gone. Every night the scene were played over and over in my mind. When I closed my eyes, I could see the trees silhouetted in the dark, feeling my heart racing, hearing the terrified final screams of the boy who would be wiped from existence in mere seconds. I hated that kid. It was hard to deny after the torment and pain he'd caused my family, but I wouldn't have wished his fate on anyone. I tried to tell myself that maybe things were better off this way. Maybe Preston would grow up to be a serial killer or something, but I knew in my heart that was probably not the case. Sarah had an effect on people that bought out the worst in them. Preston was a terrible kid, but would things have been different? had his family not moved down the street from ours? Would he not have acted so maliciously if he hadn't been exposed to Sarah? There was no way to know for sure, but these questions are ones that kept me up at night. That was until the shock had worn off enough for me to finally consider the two questions that I'd have been too afraid to broach. Was this the first time she'd done this, and would she do something like this again? I had a thought cross my mind in the wee hours of the morning after all, but the raccoons and 
crickets had gone to sleep. Originally, there had been three boys that tormented Sarah. The other two had allegedly moved away, but I hadn't seen a moving van. All we had to go by was the account of the bored and nosy neighbors on our street. I spent days thinking about this before I finally decided to find out for myself. If the Francis and Brian families really had moved, their house would be empty. I waited until Hannah and Sarah were asleep. I had no intention of telling either of them anything until I had a solid conclusion. As much as I loved Hannah, she wasn't always good at keeping things from Sarah. She didn't have the same focus I did, I suppose. I didn't blame her for that, but it meant I had to go and be careful with what I told her. At around three, I got out of bed and slipped on my shoes. The street was illuminated by the street lamps spaced a few houses apart, and the moon above cast an ominous glow around me as I stepped out into the July night. I put my hands in my pockets and began to stroll down the sidewalk. I badly, I badly wanted to run, to get there and be done with the whole business as quickly as possible, but I knew if someone did see me, a man running in the middle of the night seemed to be more suspicious than someone going on a late night stroll. It must have been only 10 or 15 minutes before I approached the house where Austin Francis had once lived. The yard was mostly dirt with only a few patches of grass here and there, all framed by a silver chain-like fence that once kept Bear and the Rottweiler from terrorizing the town. I opened the gate and approached a window. I, I didn't need to enter the house. I just needed to see inside, but um, unfortunately the freaking curtains were drawn. I walked to the perimeter of the house and attempted another window. Still, there was nothing to see but darkness. Sighing, I allowed myself one last attempt before I went to the Ryan household. I tried the knob on the back door. It twisted and the door opened with a soft creak that sent my heart pounding. I stepped in and was immediately hit by the acid scent of decaying meat. I turned on the lights and was unsurprised to find that there was no power. Using a flashlight on my phone, I toured the house. Bowls and plates still sat on the kitchen table. The food they had once held long since dried up, leaving gray and brown remnants. Curiously, I opened the fridge, then immediately closed it as a smell struck my face and made my eyes water. I walked the rest of the I walked the rest of the house, seeing dirty laundry, empty bottles of alcohol, and generally the signs of a house that was being lived in, not a house that had been vacated. The scent grew stronger and stronger as I approached the bedroom, terrified to see what was on the other side of the door, but knowing I had no other choice but if I intended to get answers. I turned the knob and stepped in. It was a boy's bedroom, presumably the bedroom of Austin Francis. Again, I found more indications that nobody had packed anything away, a television, a PlayStation video games, motto cars, things that no boy would leave without. But none of that was what surprised me. What surprised me were the black splatters of dried blood and tissue and fragments of bone that covered the walls, spreading like the bed like the boy had gone to bed with a belly full of explosives. Not for the first time since entering the house, I swallowed back hot bile from the pit of my stomach. I closed the bedroom door thinking then to wipe my fingerprints from the knob then moved along to the master bedroom where I saw a familiar scene. Both Mr. and Mrs. Francis were lying in bed except their heads had been removed from their bodies and replaced with 
similar arc of blood and gray matter painting the pillows, walls, and headboard. After that, I'd, I'd seen what I needed to and left the house in a haze. Once the door behind me was closed, I lost a battle with my stomach and lurched violently on the overgrown rose bushes that were planted a few feet away from the back door. How long ago had it been since the Francis family allegedly moved? I wasn't sure. It had definitely been over a year, probably closer to two. I racked my brain as I made my way further down the street toward the Ryan house, trying to remember every detail I could about how the information had traveled to Hannah about the families had moved. She'd been the one to tell me on both accounts. She had said she got the information from Tammy Howell, the woman next door who had little better to do than talk on the phone and look out the window. Why would Tammy lie about the Francis family moving? Or had she honestly thought that that was what happened? In similar fashion to how Preston's own father seemed to honestly think he never had a son. The Ryan house looked better kept from the outside, although not by much. Weeds had overgrown the lawn and one of the windows had been broken, presumably by a rock thrown from the street. I again attempted to peer through the windows, but after a few fruitless endeavors, I let myself into the backyard to try my luck with the back door. Again, it opened without a problem. The stretch that hit my nose was far less potent than the one lingering in the Francis household, but equally as unnerving. Even still, I expected to find the similar signs of abandonment that I'd found in the other house, but when I flipped on the, my phone's light, I was surprised to see a somewhat clean, empty house. A layer of dust and dirt covered most of the surfaces, but there were no... No furniture, no pictures, nothing to indicate that the house was being lived in. It seemed that the house really had been vacated, except for the smell. I felt the smell to a bedroom and opened the door. Again, I had to choke back the urge to evacuate whatever was left in my stomach. My eyes watered as I lifted the light to illuminate the boy's bedroom. This time, instead of the whole room being painted in blood, only half of it was... Lying in the bed were the remains of Kenny Ryan. His left half was perfectly intact, his gray skin taut and dry against his skeleton, while his right was completely missing. It looked as if he had fallen sideways into a wood chipper. Unlike with the rest of the house, this rim seemed completely untouched. There were no signs of any intention of packing up Kenny's possessions for the oncoming move. In fact, it seemed as if the family had simply forgotten him. It was with this thought that my heart dropped even further. They really had forgotten about Kenny. He hadn't disappeared like Preston, but he may as well have been in the hearts and minds of his family. Is that what Sarah had been trying to do to the Ryan family the year before? There was no way to know for sure. I had no intention of asking her, but that seemed to fit a morbid sort of way. After spending another few weeks fully processing what I'd found, I'd shared my discovery with Hannah, and I was a bit nervous to pull her deeper into the problem she she had always struggled with keeping things from Sarah, but I felt like the secret would devour me if I kept it any freaking longer. The start of the school year was fast approaching, and Hannah and I were obsessing over the decision whether or not to allow Sarah to enroll for another year. 
We were terrified that something else would happen, especially given what I'd found about the Ryan and Francis families, but we also wanted to maintain some semblance of normalcy for Sarah. And if I'm being honest, Hannah and I, Hannah and I needed a break from the constant buzz of danger and unease that pulled our daughter and had now coated every surface of our house. We hadn't yet made our decision, but decided it was best for Sarah to go to an orientation at least. We decided I would go with her to see how she did. If anyone came up to her to ask how her summer went, or was, or to find out if there were others like Preston Jarvis on Sarah's chopping block. Nobody approached her, but there was also no bullying either. All things considered, I took it as a win. When we arrived home, Hannah was gone. She'd left a note telling us she'd gotten a call from the neighbor who needed help with something and would be back late. This struck me as odd, but I did my best not to think about it just in case Sarah was listening in from her bedroom, which she'd made a beeline to the moment we arrived home. Later that night, I received a text from Hannah asking if Sarah was asleep. I told her that she was, and Hannah walked in the front door, face red and eyes swollen. I... She started, then began sobbing. I hold her and let her tears soak into my shirt until eventually she calmed down enough to speak. I'm so scared, she finally whispered. Scared of what? I asked, knowing damn well what she was afraid of. I was afraid of it too. I found something, Hannah said, pulling away from me. She swallowed and I could see her throat bob up and down as she searched for the words. When you and Sarah left for orientation, went through her bedroom. I didn't want to say anything about it because I hated when my parents would go through my bedroom and I, and I hope they, they wouldn't find anything. She paused for a moment, but I said, Feeling the silence and searching her eyes for the answer. What did you find? She shook her head, unable to speak, then pulled out her phone and handed it to me. On the screen was a picture she'd taken of an old stained shoebox. Inside was a collection of tales from a variety of small animals. Some of them were very old and brittle, other fairly fresh with meat still clinging on from where they tore off. This pile of tales sat in a nest, composed of dozens of blood-stained collars and pet tags. I looked up in shock and disbelief. I found that in her closet, Hannah said. Go to the next picture. I swiped to the left and saw the image of an open book. It took me a moment, but I recognized it as a journal Sarah had received from one of her grandmothers last Christmas. I can't say for certain when the idea of killing Sarah first crossed my mind. It, it could have been that night Hannah showed me pictures of Sarah's journal. It could have been that night. Preston Jarvis disappeared. It could have been during the hellish weeks that followed while we walked on eggshells around our own house, praying to any god that will listen to deliver us the nightmare we had found ourselves in. For a while, nothing seemed real. Could Sarah, my Sarah, kill people? No way, never. But she had. Pictures of her from school, smiling happily back at us from in front of a painted woodland background hugged the hallway. I would pass him, seeing her bright eyes, and ask myself if I truly believed that little girl was capable of the atrocities we accused her of. It was simply not possible, but it was. The idea sat in the back of my head, festering like an infected boil for weeks until it suddenly burst, spreading its contents all over my mind. I hated myself for thinking it, for even allowing the thoughts to come into my mind so clearly as that, but but I hated myself even more for failing to see another option. 
There was no psychologist, no corrections officer, no court that could contain her. If Sarah wanted to be free to do what she wished, then it was just a matter of willing it so. Perhaps, perhaps if there was a correct dosage of some drug we can give her so that it could dampen these abilities and maybe there was a chance to reason with her. But if we got it wrong, it would cost the lives of everyone involved and countless others. The only way to ensure everyone's safety was to remove Sarah from the board altogether. She was too powerful, too psychotic to be able to live a happy, healthy life. She had always been a scourge in the neighborhood, no matter how much love we had shown her. And for 13 years, we had been proven time and time again that the rest of the world would shut her out and fear and hate her. Perhaps that fate would be the best for her as well. I knew that wasn't true, but that was a lie I told myself to get myself to sleep. When I brought this idea up to Hannah, I think a part of me wanted her to hate me for it. I wanted her to slap me across the face and tell me how awful I was for even suggesting such a thing, but, but she would give me no such satisfaction. I had taken her to dinner under the guest of wanting a romantic evening under the house. After we'd ordered our entries, however, Hannah called me out. What is it? She asked, a note of concern and dread in her voice. I frowned. Don't, don't give me that look, she said, a bit more harshly than I think she attended. You got us out of the house so we could talk about Sarah, didn't you? Has something else happened? No, no, I said, shaking my head. Nothing like that. She took a sip of her water. But it is something about Sarah, isn't it? I collected myself for a minute, drinking about half my glass of ice water as I did so, then told Hannah my idea. Mara felt like it was going to beat right out of my chest onto the plate of Alfredo I'd ordered, and I didn't speak for several long moments. I tried to eat my meal, but at that moment it seemed like the least appetizing thing in the world. When she did speak, her voice was low, quiet, and bubbling over with regret. I think you're right. I wasn't sure if I was going to laugh or sob. The two balanced each other out and instead I sat there stoically. Did you hear me? Hannah asked. Tears were welling in her eyes and then in the corners of her mouth where it was twitching downward. I nodded, still unable to speak. My throat was burning. We sat for hours in that restaurant, eventually found our stomachs after some time and we were able to put at least a little food down. It was there that we began to hatch our plan. The first part of the plan was to get our neighbors on board, at least Bob from across the street and Tammy next door. They were the most likely of anyone to see or notice anything suspicious. We taught ourselves that either Bob or Tammy refused to help us or at least corroborate the story we would craft and then we would call the whole thing off. I rehearsed what I would say a dozen times before I found myself on Bob's front porch with a plate of cookies Hannah had made. Bob smiled when he opened the door and saw the cookies, but when he met my eyes, his smile collapsed. Come on in, Bob said. You look like you've got something to talk about. He led me in and around the corner where he had two maroon recliners. The house smelled of roses. Can I get you a drink? Bob asked, but already he was shuffling to the kitchen. Sure, I answered, knowing well that if I hadn't declined his offer, Bob would still come out with two beers anyway. I heard the tinkling of glass and the familiar sound of the cat being removed. Then Bob came back around the corner. He handed me a bottle, 
then sat down in the adjacent recliner, sighing. No. What's on your mind, son? I tried to swallow, but my mouth was too dry. I took a sip of the beer and began. Sarah's not well, I said. Bob raised his eyebrows. Is it the cancer? No, no, no. Nothing like that, I said. She got something wrong with her mind. I'm, I'm sure you've noticed that she's different from the other children and, and that she makes people feel, well, uncomfortable. Bob nodded. I swallowed another sip of beer. We've done what we can to help her, but things have gotten past a point where we can offer help, where anyone can offer help. I paused, searching Bob's face. What I was about to say next would condemn me. Do you remember that day Bear got hit by that U-Haul? That was Sarah. She's, she's able to do things like that, but also much more terrible things. I think that's why people feel the way they do when they're around her. They can sense that she's different. She's dangerous. A few things have happened. I'd rather not get into details, but I will if you need me to. That I've brought Hannah and myself to the conclusion that... Bob held up a hand. My stomach twisted around like a coiled snake. Did I ever tell you my time in the service? I shook my head, so taken aback by this sudden change in topic that I momentarily lost my voice. I was stationed near Kiestan in 68 and saw more bloodshed than any man could ever see in his life. Thousands of people died that year. Many nights I would fall asleep to the sounds of gunfire in the distance and wake up to the sounds of men screaming. I can't say I didn't take lives. God, God help me, I took far more than I care to say, but there were others. He trailed off, and for a moment I wondered if he would continue his story. When he spoke again, his voice was rough and his eyes misted by tears from the past. I first met Paul when we were in boot camp together, and he was my only lasting friend throughout the entire nightmare. When the killing started, I didn't think I could be more terrified, but... When I looked at Paul, I saw something that scared me even more than the thought of losing my life to the enemy. I could see the pleasure in Paul's eyes every time he fired his weapon at another man. He enjoyed it. He loved it. He told stories of his exploits, his murders, as if they were some hunting tales. He'd talk about many gorillas he'd killed, and like they were nothing but a few low-point bucks. And with every word he spoke... His self-satisfaction grew. As the days became weeks and the weeks became months, that look in his eyes stayed. The story he told became more horrendous and the man that he once seemed to be lost forever. I saw him open fire on men, women, and children, relishing every final breath he took for his own. I saw him commit atrocities that I would never speak of. We got our transfer papers one night and where most men would feel joy and excitement to finally leave the bloodshed, I felt horror. Horror for those that would cross paths with my once dear friend, for I had no doubt in my mind that the killing may have stopped for me, but for Paul, it was only just begun. It was a game to him now. He would continue to play. The last life I ever took was that of my best friend in the jungle of Vietnam on the day before we were set to transfer. We had stumbled across a family of travelers along the road, where I saw people, men, women, children. Paul saw nothing but lambs for the slaughter. He brought up his rifle to his shoulder, 
I shot him in the back of the head. I don't wonder if I did the right thing, but if I had done the right thing sooner, how many innocent lives would have been saved? Bob held the bottle up to his lips and finished his beer, and stood up and went to the kitchen for another. I love that little girls of yours, he called from the kitchen. The note of pain that had developed in his voice now seemed to seep through the walls. I too want what's best for her. I won't hear the question you came here to ask, so things are better left than said, but, but I think you'll find, you'll find the answer, nonetheless. Hannah and I have both been avoiding watching the news in the house since Sarah arrived home. There was that something like the news of the red trailer truck stop would come on and our thoughts would betray us. All it took was one glimpse of that truck stop, and I knew we wouldn't be able to help immediately thinking about that night. It was like having a gun to my head and watching a documentary about lions and trying not to think about a lion, even for a moment, lest the trigger be pulled. The truth is that we had passed that truck stop two times that night, once with a little girl buckled up in the back seat, her lifeless head lolling around as a car hit bumps on the road, and once with once with nothing but silence and a queer sense of relief fueling the car. It was the closest sign of civilization from where we had left Sarah, and would have been the first place anyone would stop, or that a teenager hitchhiker in the passenger seat with no memory of how she got there. The morning of the day Sarah showed up on our doorstep was when a short order cook had discovered a truck stop full of bodies. That was no coincidence. Sarah had been there, but what had caused her to kill those people? Had she been attacked? It's possible, but... I don't think so. There were no signs of violence at all, at least according to the news, and I would imagine if someone had attacked her, there would either be no body at all or their body would be smeared across the walls. I think I think that it boils down to two scenarios. Either Sarah had no control over what happened, or she had complete control and simply didn't care like a child stumping on an anthill. Regardless of which way that door swings, it leads to a room with a nuclear missile and I'd been sleeping right next door. I'd been debating with myself for a while about whether to bring the news of the red trailer truck stop up with Hannah. The secret feels as if it would consume me, but I fear it I fear it would be too much for Hannah to take. She was never as good at keeping things from Sarah as I was, and she's already been trying to keep an enormous one from breaking down the barriers in her mind, but but if something is to be done about Sarah being around and equally as dangerous as before, then I'm not sure if I'm capable of, of carrying that burden alone. The answer, as it so happens, came to me this morning in the form of newspaper. We don't, we don't subscribe to the newspaper, so when Hannah slid it across the breakfast table, I was, I was a bit perplexed. You should give them a look at work later and we can make a shopping list. Sarah was still in bed, but even still, it was wise to continue to keep up the charade. You got it, I said, finishing my coffee in two gulps and grabbing my bag. I'm going to head out now. I kissed Hannah and left the house quickly, knowing that the longer I stayed there, the more likely my curiosity would seep through the thin veneer of my thoughts about work and what to do for lunch later. I drove down the street and parked in a gas station a few blocks away. I had half an hour before I needed to be at work, so there was plenty of time to read whatever Hannah was trying to get me out to read. I was about to look for the coupon section, thinking she'd given me a clue, but 
As it turns out, what I needed to read was on the front page. Many have long suspected a connection between the recent series of unexplained deaths, starting with those individuals at the Red Trailer Truck Stop, and most recently occurring yesterday in the case of Robert Sullivan. But it wasn't until yesterday evening that representatives from the Federal Bureau of Investigation officially announced that they are researching possible connections between these deaths. Including the eight victims of the Red Trailer Truck Stop, there have been over 20 deaths that have baffled both police and medical examiners. If there had been any identified cause of death, FBI Representative Todd Hull states, we would have entered the possibility of a mentally ill individual or a group of ill individuals harming the public. Right now, we are researching the possible and likely connection between these deaths and urge the public to contact the local medical professionals immediately with any unexplained changes in mood, activity level, awareness level, diet, and so forth. This does not appear to be related to the drinking water, nor an airborne contaminant, but I assure you, we are exploring very possible avenue. Hall further urges the public to be vigilant and to pay close attention to loved ones. Probably the most baffling part of this whole case is the lack of public engagement, Hall says. Not a single victim has been reported to the police by close friends or family for several days. I cannot stress enough that vigilance is key to assuring the safety of ourselves and our loved ones. Hall, of course, is referring to the fact that each death has been reported only by neighbors or passed-by. Authorities have reported family and close friends acting shocked by the news of the death of their loved ones. Even though those loved ones may have been in plain sight for several days prior to a wellness check by police. As I read this article, it felt as if my head was floating in the water. Sarah hadn't stopped at the truck stop, and now it seemed as if her reach was even further than it was three years ago. Robert Sullivan, Bob as I knew him, lived ten miles away on the other side of town. There, sitting in the gas station parking lot with the newspaper, sitting across my lap and steering wheel, I began to cry. The night we killed our daughter is one that will forever be branded in my mind. Each night afterward, as I closed my eyes and drifted off to sleep, I would replay those moments and events over and over, relieving the darkest, most shameful moment of my life. I would remember the weight of Sarah's lifeless body in my arms, the weight of my own heart as I carried her from the car, and I would silently weep. Hannah and I needed months of careful planning before we could make our move. Hannah and I needed months of careful planning before we could make our own move, which proved especially difficult because we couldn't even think about what we were going to do lest Sarah discover our secrets. Every morning as I drove to work, I would finally get the chance to think about how I would take my daughter's life. Every evening as I drove home, I, I would work to push those thoughts from my brain and replace them with thoughts of how work went and whatever songs were on the radio. It was during one of these morning commutes, singing about a cowboy's sad, sad song that I just couldn't get out of my head when it finally hit me. One of the most surefire ways Hannah had been able to keep Sarah out of her mind was by keeping her song stuck in her head. I'd assumed that had been why she started singing more, but I hadn't noticed until that moment that all three songs were by an 80s band called Poison, a group I knew Hannah didn't listen to. The night when I got home, I put my theory to the test by singing Lou Duran's song my mother used to play. We understood each other. Hannah didn't know the song, but 
but the moment I got to the course, her eyes snapped so, so quickly I thought she had certainly given herself away. I quickly glanced at Sarah, careful to keep my mind on the song. She was sitting quietly on the couch, staring through the window into the night sky. She did that more and more often those days, like she was somewhere else entirely. She would spend hours in such a position, staring at nothing but the blank space between her face and the window. I'd often wonder how cognizant she really was of her surroundings, but didn't dare allow myself to think she was anything less than completely aware. It was through that method that Hannah and I hatched our plan. It was early spring, the days had finally begun to get longer, but that day felt like the longest of all. I went to work, started to school, and Hannah spent the day running errands. Hannah and I met for lunch at a diner around the corner from my office. I ordered the tomato soup and BLT and Hannah had the tuna melt. We talked about the grocery list and Sarah's upcoming math test, putting on a show for anyone that might remember us later. Although, there were very few people in the diner that afternoon, and fewer still that might be within earshot. That was partially why I chose that diner. The other part was because I knew the security camera in the corner wasn't working, so there would be no record of Hannah carefully sliding a small envelope across the table, concealed by her palm. The envelope contained a white powder I understood to be midazolam, a potent sedative. As it turned out, the neighbor Hannah had gone to see you while I spoke with Bob. Tammy Howell had a nurse friend with low morals who had been able to procure a pill here and there for Tammy when she asked. It had only taken a phone call and a couple of weeks before the drug was in our possession. I'd been hoping for something strong, but it was assured that this should do the trick, especially since this powder had once been in the form of ten whole pills prior to Hannah crushing them up far more than would ever be used for a single dose. But that kind of dosage, I'd imagine any sedative would do the job. A few hours later, I was parked in the garage. Next to me sat two greasy paper bags and a cardboard carrier with three milkshakes. Under normal circumstances, one of the bags would have been opened and half of the fries gone, but, but that night they stayed untouched. What little I had eaten during lunch had all come up a few hours later, and the thought of eating anything else sickened me. Inside the bags were three burgers, each wrapped in foil and held together by a label to identify contents. I had the bacon jalapeno burger, Anna had the chicken sandwich, and Sarah had her favorite bacon cheeseburger with extra pickles. The sticker had made things a bit more difficult than I hoped, but with patience I had been successful in peeling it back enough to slide the sandwich free and sprinkle about half of the envelope's contents in the middle. The rest had gone into a chocolate shake. Of course I couldn't think about these things though as I sat in the garage, just about how rough work had been and wondering if I was coming down from something, or if I just had acid reflux, which would give me an excuse later if I couldn't keep dinner down. I put on a smile and carried the food in as I walked through the door. Hannah met me at the door and kissed my cheek and thanked me for picking up dinner. Hannah set up the table and began dividing up the contents of the bag while I approached Sarah's bedroom. I rapped on the door three times, as always. Man. Dinner's here, I said. Nothing but silence answered me. I had been expecting this. Sarah seldom had joined us for meals anymore. For weeks, we only really saw her just before and after school as she made a beeline toward her bedroom and the front door. Every other moment was spent locked in a room, presumably reading. I hadn't allowed myself to think for a moment Sarah was doing anything else for fear I might be right. 
What I hadn't been expecting was the sound of the door opening behind me after I turned and started backward toward the kitchen. I was on to leave her food in front of her bedroom door like always. Silhouetted in the darkness, Sarah's bedroom light was never on, so did my daughter. She looked thin, pale, and, and her hair hung in thick, greasy ropes. She looked like nothing but an empty husk canal, and for a brief moment I felt better about what would soon transpire. This... This thing in Sarah's body wasn't my daughter, she was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Hey kiddo, I said, glad you decided to join us. I got your favorite, complete with a chocolate shake, cause I don't know about you, but I've had one hell of a week. Sarah didn't respond with more than an empty stare. We ate in the most poignant silence of my life. Sarah didn't look up at either of us, just ate the food in front of her, while her head was hovering closely to the plate. I wasn't sure when the last time I saw her eat was, but watching it now gave me chills. God, she ain't like an animal. Her head snapped at me as that thought slipped through the cracks of my mind. Grease and salt and condiments were smeared across her face and hands. Hatred shot from her eyes like bullets. Do you want a napkin? I asked. Attempting to sound casual, but knowing I had, I had failed even as the words came out. I was staring into the face of a hideous beast. The longer she stared at me, the less human she seemed. Her pupils had completely overtaken the irises, leaving nothing but black pools of tar amidst a sea of white. Her jaw jutted forward in a bit of an unnatural way, and it wasn't until she smiled at me that I understood why. Her teeth were flat and shallow from the months of being constantly ground together. The teeth alone were enough to send chills down my spine. But the way her mouth worked as she smiled, the muscles in her cheeks and jaw tightening, the veins in her neck and forehead pushing against her skin like worms below the surface, that was enough to make me want to run. I passed her a napkin, tapped the corner of my mouth to show her where she needed to wipe the ketchup from and returned to finish my meal. The moment her food was gone, Sarah returned to her bedroom. Hannah and I exchanged the quickest of looks, then began to clean up. I had read that medazolam takes somewhere around half an hour to take effect, but we elected to give it an hour. As the hour passed, the changes feeling of calm began to slowly trickle into the house. It was so foreign to me that I'd wondered for a moment if I'd eaten the wrong burger and was now feeling the sedative take effect, but knew in an instant that wasn't possible. The calm we were feeling wasn't calm at all, not really, but the sense of danger being lifted from the house. We'd spent so many years under this dark blanket of doom and depression and fear that I'd forgotten what it felt like to feel safe in my own home. It would seem that the jug had done a job. At the very minute the hour passed, Hannah and I were knocking on Sarah's door. Sarah? I called. No answer. Not that there would have been one anyway, but this time, there was no shuffling sound, no footsteps, nothing at all. I clenched my jaw, my hand as hopeful and horrified gaze, then opened the door. Our daughter sat on the floor, leaning limply against the wall. I thought about turning on the light, but thought better of it. It was best I saw as little as possible. In her lap sat the open shoebox Hannah had discovered, and between her lifeless fingers was the orange tail of a cat. It looked fresh. I knelt down and called her name again. Sir. Sir, can you hear me? It's your dad. Nothing. I felt her neck for a pulse. Nothing. I laid her down and put my head over her mouth and nose, looking for the sound or feel of breath. Nothing. 
Finally, Hannah had retrieved the stethoscope Tammy had lent her, and I used it to listen for a heartbeat. We needed to be sure. I stood up inside, and with that sigh came over a decade's worth of tears. Tears for the pets Sarah had taken, tears for the families Sarah had ruined, but mostly tears for the little girl who had once brought me my oil filter wrench when she heard me in my mind that I needed it. The little girl who had so much potential, but had been born into a world that would shun her and fear her and hate her for, for what she could do. None of this had been her fault, but she'd had to bear it nonetheless. It wasn't fair. It had never been fair. I sobbed for a long time, holding my daughter's body in an embrace. I hadn't dared while her heart still beat. Hannah sat next to me, sobbing into the nap of my neck. We cried until the wells ran dry, and there were no more tears left to express the depression, fear, regret, and, and relief we felt. The wells would fill again, though, and the tears would be back, but, but it was best that they had left for at least the next few hours. We still had work to do. Hannah carried Sarah to the car. She was disturbingly light and I went to work on the window frame with the crowbar from the shed. Once I'd gotten the window pride open, I'd cleaned the wood and paint from the end of the crowbar and returned it to the shed. Behind me, Bob's grave face watched from the window. He met my eye as I went back to examine my handiwork, and I gave him the slightest nod of confirmation. He wiped the palm, he wiped the palm across his face, presumably to catch it falling tear, then close the curtain. Hannah was already waiting in the car. Behind her, buckled in with a blanket draped across her lap, sat Sarah's lifeless body. This had been something we'd thought about at length, and had been the topic of conversation several times and we'd found ourselves able to actually speak plainly without fear of Sarah overhearing. We had no idea how the medication would affect Sarah, nor, nor did we know if killing her was even possible, so Hannah had the idea of buckling Sarah in the back seat. If she suddenly woke up, we would have a better story to tell her than if she awoke in a locked trunk. We drove in silence for two hours, passing the red trailer truck stop along the way before we reached the point where roads became trails, then another hour as we forged our own trail through the desert. We drove until we finally found what we had been looking for, a distant mine shaft that hadn't been nearly used in Half a century after a cave-in took the lives of a dozen men. This wasn't the main shaft that usually saw its fair share of graffiti artists and ghost hunters, but one on the other side of the former compound that wasn't seldom used because of how small it was. It was only large enough to shuttle equipment from the mine to the surface, but if a person was small enough, they could slide themselves down and never see daylight again. We hiked the distance from the car to the mine shaft taking turns carrying Sarah on our arms and passing her back and forth as we climbed the few chain-link fences marked with no trespassing signs. When we arrived, I took a final moment to say goodbye to Sarah and to tell her how sorry I was for everything that had happened to her. Hannah had already begun crying again, but was able to choke out a heartfelt goodbye, baby girl. I'll always love you. I kissed Sarah on the forehead. Hannah did the same, and with that... We bid farewell to our little girl forever. So we thought. The news of Bob's death weighed heavy on my mind since I first learned of it. 
Equally as heavy was the news of Tamara Tammy Howell that I learned of a few days later. I recognized several of the other names on the news, including Mark Jarvis, Preston's father, Lawrence Marshall, Sarah's former math teacher, and Evelyn Gates, the mother of a girl who had suffered two broken legs after she stuck gum in Sarah's hair during lunch. If there was any doubt that Sarah was involved in these deaths, it was dashed that night. Hannah and I had just sat down to dinner when there was a knock at the door. I stood from where I sat at the table wondering who it could be while Hannah sat quietly in the kitchen. Sarah was in her room where she'd been for most of the afternoon, a plate of food just outside her bedroom door. I opened the front door and saw the nervous face of David Preston, my neighbor from across the street. He was a slight man, not elderly but approaching his twilight years, who had made a living for the past two decades as a business accountant. Complete with thick, rimmed glasses and a pen in his breast pocket, Dave couldn't look the part better if he tried. Hey Dave, I said, a bit bemused. Everything alright? I actually came over here to ask you that, he answered. There was a tremble in his voice I'd never heard before. Sure, what's going on? He swallowed, searching for the right words. Well, I've been meaning to come over and and make sure you and Hannah were doing all right. He held up a plate of brownies I had noticed until just then. Auntie made these for you. Thought it might help with whatever you're going through. I frowned. I'm, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. He held up a hand apologetically. I'm sorry. I don't mean to pry. We've... We've just seen you and Hannah a bit less than usual, and when we do see you, we we can tell that there's something troubling you. We've tried to wave a few times, but I think you've been so wound up in your own, own in your own world to notice, which is just fine. He added quickly, "We don't take any offense. We just wanted to let you know that we're here for you both if you ever need an iris." I was touched, nearly to the point of tears. Thank you, Dave. I told him, "That's very kind." I took the plate and was just about to shut the door when he stopped me. There's something else I wanted to talk to you about, he said in a low, conspiring voice. Behind me, I heard the faintest creak of a door opening down the hallway. I matched Dave's low tone. What is it? This is going to sound a bit crazy, so... So please know that I wouldn't say this if I hadn't seen it for myself, but sometimes Nancy and I think... We can see a woman standing in your upstairs window. I could feel the moisture leave my throat. I'm sorry? I don't think... I don't think it's Hannah. This woman is real thin, very unhealthy. You... You don't have anyone else living here, do you? I shook my head. No. I was afraid of that, Dave said. He looked... He looked around, feeling the same sense of growing danger that I felt. Now, here's the crazy part. And please know this comes from a place of love for you and your wife, but I don't think that woman we've seen in your window is human. She's... she's just... she doesn't seem right. And it was then that Dave's neck snapped, tilting in an unnatural jagged angle, and the plate of brownies fell to the pavement and shattered. I heard nothing at first, just a fast beating of my heart and the high-pitched hum of blood in my ears. Then, all at once I heard the screaming, 
it came into stereo from both behind me and across the street. Nessie Preston had watched the scene from her doorstep, and Hannah, it seemed, from behind me. I slammed the door shut and whirled around. Hannah had indeed been standing behind me and behind her, wearing the same chest and grin I'd seen the second night she'd stayed with us, said Sarah. Her hair fell in her face in twisted knots, and although her mouth was shaped in a crescent moon of look and joy, her eyes were like that of a corpse. He shouldn't have thought those things, Sarah said tonelessly. They always think those things. And I continued screaming, her arms and hands shaking. She looked at Sarah, then at me, and, and that look told me far more than it should have. It told me that she was helplessly remembering that night and every night leading up to it, which would be her demise. The screaming stopped abruptly, or at least the sound had. Hannah's throat still flexed and her veins still stood out in her neck, but no sound escaped her throat. Sarah, I began, but I suddenly lost my own voice as well, and all I could choke out was a dry wheeze. She was never as good as the game as you were, was she? Sarah asked me in the same toneless voice. She would sing songs, trying to keep me out, but eventually her thoughts would trickle through in her dreams. What are you talking about? I thought to Sarah, still unable to speak, but knowing she could hear me. Don't pretend, Daddy. She told you everything. She poisoned my food that night, dumped me in the desert, and left me to rot, and told everyone that I'd simply gone missing. Everyone but you, that is. You helped her do it. You helped her carry me to the desert and leave me there to rot. Hannah closed her eyes, and for a moment, her hold on Hannah's throat wand and my wife was allowed the final, ear-splitting cry. Just like Preston Jarvis, Hannah, my wife, and Sarah's mother had been erased from existence. I fell to my knees and began to sob. Sarah approached me slowly, then knelt down and pressed her lips to my ear. Her breath was hot and putrid, a scent of rotting meat that I would later find in the form of a half-eaten bird in her bedroom. I won't, I won't take her away from you like I did Preston's parents. You don't deserve that, I said. I'll leave her in your mind, but only just enough to you, forgotten. I looked up and met her eyes for the last time, seeing nothing but two black, hateful pupils, and then Sarah was gone as well, and I was alone. I didn't allow myself to think about it then, and wouldn't allow myself until long after the feeling of dread had been lifted from the house, but when it had, I felt a wave of regret and love crash into me like a, like a freight train. My wife hadn't been able to keep Sarah out, and she'd known it. She couldn't keep Sarah from finding out the truth, but she, she could keep her from finding out the whole truth. She'd twisted things around enough to give me a chance for mercy, to allow Sarah to believe that Hannah had been the instigator and I only had been involved after it was too late. Which I know I didn't deserve. The police did come eventually to collect Dave's body from my porch. A passing jogger had seen his corpse lying on my porch and had called 911. Even though his wife had seen what happened, had screamed his name as he fell to the ground, she told the police the last thing she remembered was having her husband take brownies over to the neighbors, and that she'd been unaware of the fact that he lay dead in plain view right across the street. I'm 
I'm inclined to believe her story because I've seen what, what Sarah can do, and, and perhaps that's, that's Sarah's way of granting mercy. With every breath I take, I can feel a little more of my wife's memory slip away. I know it's still there somewhere deep in my mind, but trying to recall things about her is becoming harder and harder, like trying to recall a dream after waking up. The features of her face are becoming distorted, blurry, and the memories we shared, our first kiss, our, our first date, our wedding night, are being blanketed by a haze I know I will never be lifted. Sarah isn't gone, not like the others. I can still feel her presence, however distant, and I know it's only a matter of time until she returns home again. So if you find yourself suddenly unable to recall the face of a loved one, or if you feel a prickling sensation on the nap of your neck while you sit alone in your bedroom, if you find yourself awake in the middle of the night with a sense of dread hanging over you, know that it it may be Sarah, and keep your thoughts guarded. She'll be listening. Hey guys, that was a long story. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, thank you guys for listening, and thank you, special thanks to the Redditor, you slash Deeperhawk, for this amazingly well-written story. I loved it a lot. Um, great reading. Thank you for allowing me to read it and narrate it. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, but once more, I hope you guys enjoyed the story. Um, one, one more thing before I do end this off. Um, I do realize I've been gone for some time. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's been, uh, I've been pretty absent. So I, I want you guys to know that I'm coming back. So yeah, that'll be fun. Um, but yeah, once more, I hope you guys enjoyed today's video. Thank you guys for listening, and I'll see you guys in the next story. So, don't forget to sit back, relax, and indulge in fear.